2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, the podcast network by and for the Australian climate community. This is the 201st episode of the Climactic Podcast, and the first episode in our third year. Since this is something of a milestone, I wanted to take a moment to share with you our story until now, and where we're looking to go from here, before we get into this episode. My name is Mark. And if you've only started listening recently, you may not have heard me as anything more than the voice in our outro. And I love that. Just over two years ago, I was a 20-something, settling in Australia and just starting to get engaged with the epic problem of climate change. I couldn't find podcasts that helped someone like me make sense of what I was feeling. Uh, The despair, the grief, the sense of being overwhelmed and I couldn't find shows that helped make the sense of the climate community. What the people behind the acronyms were like. Yes, the AYCC, WWF, CANA, the Climate Council, Greenpeace, Climate Reality Project, but would I fit in with the people there? Who should I talk to, volunteer with, support, follow? You haven't heard me much on the Climactic Podcast Network because, well, the original idea has worked. We've got remarkable people who've joined the show to talk to other great people in the climate community, from nationally and globally famous folks to volunteers at local environment groups, and I'm especially proud of those. We've had people share remarkable stories with our hosts. Where to from here, then? Well, we're figuring that out. Do we want to chase polish and sonic perfection and aim to become a network of award-winning podcasts with climate as a subject? Or do we want to keep things raw, more accessible, and keep a wide open door to all kinds of people to share with us? Or do we split the difference? Already, Climactic has created multiple new feeds to let you follow along with your favorite hosts and favorite shows that until now have all shared the same feed. But whether it's feeling the change, Seasters, Sci-Fight, Catastrophic, the Bleeding Heart Survival Kit, or launching very soon, Serially Curious with Mark and Eve, you can now subscribe to shows individually. This is an exciting new chapter, and I'm thrilled to be telling you all now, on episode 201 of what was becoming a really unruly and hard-to-describe climactic feed. The door is still wide open to creators across the climate spectrum. Want to make a podcast? Join the Climactic Collective. We're always happy to talk all things podcasting and climate. Want to launch a show on our network? Awesome. But just know that's not a requirement to get in touch with us. To subscribe to these shows and to find everything in one place, please check out our new website at climactic.fm. Our email address remains hello at climactic.fm to get in touch. Now, just a quick word about this next interview. Katerina Cosgrove is a freelance writer, and I reached out to her after I saw an article she'd written about the similarities between her experience surviving cancer and the mental fortitude it takes to engage with the climate crisis. I was thrilled that she responded positively and enthusiastically to my offer to put it on Climactic if she would do a reading of it. It remains one of my favorite episodes of this show. This interview is with Derek Jensen, a prolific and controversial writer on the climate crisis. He is an eco-philosopher, a radical environmentalist, 
and anti-civilization advocate. Katerina lays out soon why this interview was so important to her, and I'll let her cover that. But I feel so privileged to see our show used as a way for members of the Australian climate community to reach out and converse with some of the people they respect and want to engage with. And we welcome that. But this is also a good time for a quick note as to Climactic's positioning on the ideological spectrum. I'd love to say we're like the platonic public broadcaster and don't have an opinion. But of course we do. As does everyone. What we are is independent. We are supported and controlled by no one but our members. And we are pro-engagement with the climate crisis and real fans of taking action to avoid imminent ecological collapse, which we think is pretty sensible. We, as a group, have declared that we are in a climate and biodiversity emergency. As such, we seek to be a platform for parts of the climate community to speak to each other and be heard and ideally be understood. People will always disagree, and within our community there is a spectrum of ideology and approaches that make that inevitable. But when that happens, we believe that disagreement, when based on understanding and coupled with empathy for each other's humanity, still allows forward progress. Please see our website for a distillation of our position and commitment to positive engagement with the climate community coming soon. Thank you for listening, and for allowing us to get to this milestone of 201 episodes at the beginning of the third year of Climactic, the podcast for our climactic times. Derek Jensen, writer and activist, listener to the earth and speaker for the non-human world. Derek claims that civilization is not and never can be sustainable. And also, I will match the insane determination and fiery hatred of the dominant culture with a grounded and relentless determination and a just as fiery and fierce love and hate of my own. Derek is the author of many books, including Endgame 1 and 2, The Culture of Make-Believe, A Language Older Than Words, and co-author of Deep Green Resistance. I'm speaking with Derek Jensen today for Climactic. Welcome, Derek. We're so excited to have you here with us. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So I'll just begin with a fairly innocuous question. Um, and and uh, I'm sure I could speak for hours and hours, but we only have 40 minutes. So my first question is, it was your rawness and authenticity that initially hooked me into reading all your books. For readers who aren't familiar with your work, which do you recommend they begin with? Well, I think that's a great question, and I think it depends on the reader a little bit. That for a while back in the maybe 13, 14 years ago, my friends and I could, we could sort of tell differences of personality between people who had first read different ones of my books. So A Language Older Than Words is the one I sort of recommend generically and it is really appreciated by, especially by people who have been through personal trauma. The book is about more than just personal trauma, but it's, it, it, what that book's really about is about how it was originally supposed to be about interspecies communication, but bef- I, I tried to write that book for a couple of years and couldn't do it, and then I finally realized that the reason I couldn't do it is because what I really wanted to talk about is before you can exploit somebody, you have to silence them. And so it's really the ways that this culture silences women, children, um, especially non-humans, the land, and, and sort of, or, or a better way to put it, is it deafens ourselves to the voices because we don't silence them because they're still speaking. It's just that it's imperative to our domination of them that we refuse to hear them. There's that book. And then some people sort of like to start with culture and make-believe and then there are other people who like to start with Endgame. And, and really, those three sort of form an informal trilogy. And if I had to say what they're about, it would be that language older than words is how you make yourself sane in this crazy culture. And culture of make-believe is once you've made yourself somewhat sane in this crazy culture and you look around, what do you see? And then Endgame is, okay, now that you've looked around, what are you going to do about it? 
So for some people, like long-term environmental activists, I say just go straight to endgame. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about this crazy culture we live in, and I would say, yes, it's insane and it's getting more insane by the day. In the face of this, how do we stay sane ourselves? How do we reconnect with our wild, our whole being? How do we reconcile our rage, our despair, our love? I'm, I'm really feeling all these emotions right now in the face of climate crisis, political corruption, oppression, denial, all of this. So how do we yeah, take that first step? Well, I think the first thing is to not deny those feelings. I think that a lot of, especially environmentalists, spend more energy trying to not feel despair than if they just felt it in the first place. And, I mean, it's just a feeling. And I've never forgotten something that, that happened to me back in the 90s. I'd been an activist for, environmental activist for, I don't know, five or six years. And I was going through this sort of collapse where I was just breaking down into sobs, you know, multiple times a week. I just couldn't bear it. And a lot of my activist friends were saying, just take some time off, Derek. The problem is to be there when you come back. I was like, I knew that that wasn't what I needed to do. The problem wasn't that I needed time off. The problem was I need for the horrors to stop. And I mean, if you're not going to cry about the death of the salmon, what are you going to cry about? And one day I, I called up this friend of mine, Jeanette Armstrong. She's an Okanagan Indian writer and activist. And I said, you know, I was having a really hard time. And I said, you know, the, the dominant culture just hates everything, doesn't it? She said, yeah, it does, even itself. I mean, unless it stops, it's going to kill everything on the planet, isn't it? She said, yeah, it is, unless it stopped. And I said, we're not going to make some great new glorious tomorrow, are we? And she said the best thing she could possibly say, which is, I've been waiting for you to say that. And the reason that was the best thing she could say is because it normalized my despair. And it let me know that despair is an appropriate response to a desperate situation. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had environmental magazines say, so Derek, we want you to write something about the apocalypse and we want you to end on a happy note. We, we try so hard. And you see, mainstream environmentalism does this all the time where they try to... They'll claim these victories that aren't actually victories just so they can feel like, so they can feel better, but it didn't, it didn't really help. And so, I, I, but, but I want to caution about something else too, which is that I, I don't have any patience for the people who say, well, you know, things are really bad, so I just need to take care of my family and I need to take care of my emotions and that's all. Because, I mean, it's it's all hands on deck. You know, this is like, like, I mean, you're you're in your home and a serial killer is killing all of your family members, and now is not the time. Yes, you're scared. Yes, you're terrified. But now is not the time for inaction. You can worry about everything else tomorrow. It's it's like the old Joe Hill line. You know, don't don't mourn, organize. You know, when I start to feel too bad and too sorry for myself that it's so hard living in this time, I think, you know, I'm not actually living in a dead zone in the ocean. I'm not battering my head against a dam. I'm not uh, running up against a fence that is now keeping me from the water hole that my family has drunk from for a thousand years. Um, I'm not a fish in a dewatered river. And they're the ones who can't turn away. And so knowing that I can turn away makes it so I don't have to. And so when I get to feeling too sorry for myself and too bad that, oh, the, the pain is too much to handle, it's like, well, got to keep going. I mean, I live in a forest. And when I go on tour and I have to spend time in a city, it just drives me crazy. So one of the things that does keep me sane is... Exactly one hour ago, I was walking through a forest and a tree that fell down about a year and a half ago, and I just noticed today that mushrooms are sprouting out of it. So that's one of the things that helps keep me sane. And just the smell of the forest and just just all of that helps. And then also, there are a lot of people who like my work 
and a lot of people who hate my work and it's nice when people like my work but the 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 ones i'm really writing for are you know the salmon and the prairie dogs and also for the humans who are here presuming any still around in a hundred years and it's like my friend Lear Keith often says if there's anybody around in a hundred years ago they're gonna wonder what was wrong with us that we didn't fight like hell when the when the world was going down and another thing is that you know when I start feeling bad about you know we don't even have to talk about non-humans when I start to feel sorry for myself that oh it's so hard to carry this this despair it's like you know what I could actually uh, be a former subsistence farmer from India who has been forced off of his land and is now living in a slum in Mumbai. You know, it's like, just buck up, little cowboy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, know, we have are... so much privilege we have yeah. to use that, that we have to be grateful for. I mean, for me, there's a, a strange freedom or comfort in not having hope of just being with what is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wrote this essay a long time ago, actually it's part of Endgame and then it was excerpted as an essay called Beyond Hope. And I've gotten a lot of flack for that, but it's mainly by people who don't really understand the essay. And the the essay is about how, well, I'll tell the story behind the essay, that I was doing a talk in Colorado one time and just bashing hope and somebody in the audience shouted out, what is your definition of hope? I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been using this word and I don't even know what it means. So then I asked the audience to define it and they came up with a great definition, which is hope is a longing for a future condition over which you have no agency. And that's how we use it in everyday language. You know, the next time I get on an airplane, I hope it doesn't crash. But I'm not going to tell you I hope that I eat lunch in a while because I'm just going to eat it. You know, it's, it's just... When I was a kid, if my mom told me to clean my room, I would not have said to her... I hope it gets done. Had I said to her, I hope it gets done, she would have said, yes, you better hope it gets done. Because we recognize in our daily lives that we only hope for things that, that we don't have agency over. But suddenly when it comes to the natural world, we say, oh gosh, I hope salmon survive. Well, what that's saying is that you're, 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 you're powerless over whether salmon survive. But what salmon need to survive is for dams to be removed, for industrial logging to stop, for industrial fishing to stop for the oceans not to be murdered and for global warming to stop. And it's like those are actual those are those are doable things. They may be daunting, but they're doable. And you know, somebody came up to me after I had given a talk on hope one time and she said to me, "Are you saying to me I can't hope that my brother survives his cancer?" I'm saying, "No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you can't say to your brother, "I hope you make it to the hospital." as you're standing there with car keys in your hand. So what I'm really getting at with that essay, we need to figure out what is within our power and what's not in our power. So there was a, a, a woman, a very smart uh, indigenous woman, wrote to me after Endgame came out to say she wanted to talk about hope a little bit and how she does think that there is a role for prayer and hope. And she and I exchanged a few notes and we teased it out that basically if I say I hope salmon survive, but I'm not doing any of those working toward those five things they need, then that's really an obscenity. But if I remove the dams and if I stop the industrial logging and industrial fishing, then, she said, I thought this was brilliant, then I have to hope and pray that the river accepts that offering and the salmon do what they need to do. I, I, I love that. And then I want to say one more thing, which is back in the 90s, I knew this guy who had... Um, was HIV positive. And he sent me this whole bunch of literature on HIV and AIDS. And there was a thing at the very beginning that just slapped me in the face. It was like a title, title of one of the articles was Eliminate False Hope. And that has been really, I think it's really crucial because false hopes, that's separate from hope. We've already talked about what hope is. But false hope is, is different. False hope is what binds us to unlivable situations and blinds us to real possibilities because we'll have this you know my my father was extremely abusive and you know there was the false hope that he would change is one of the things that, that kept us there what is it that keeps us tied to the current i don't know how many parties you have in in australia but in the united states we have this two-party system and we keep hoping that the democrats if we just get a democrat in the white house things are going to be okay 
you know, and that's just that's just a false hope. It's completely absurd. And so one of the things I think is really crucial to do is to eliminate false hopes. You know, a false hope that's being peddled right now is that wind and solar are going to save the planet. Well, they're not. That is a false hope. And what one of the things that false hopes do is they waste time we don't have on solutions that won't work. And this is true whether we're talking about the ones I just mentioned or, or, or any others. I think what I really like for this is sort of a medical model where, and there's problems with the medical model, but, but, but one of the things I like about it is when they diagnosed that I had Crohn's disease, they didn't come in and say, well, there's, we got some hopeful things we can tell you. They just came in and they said, I'm really sorry. You have Crohn's disease. And now here are the options. And when my mom was diagnosed with cancer two years ago, he just came in and, and squatted down right next to her bed and said, I'm really sorry, but you have cancer. And, and now it's time for us to look at the options. And, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but the planet has civilization and we need to look at the options. Yeah, and I find that the problem with mainstream environmental movements and with people in general is that this false hope is what keeps them going. And, you know, you say people like and hate your work, and I'm sure the people who hate your work feel that if the, you take away hope, they have nothing. Well, that's part, that's part of the deal is that, is that I think, I mean, I have hope. It's the problem is that we're not using the word to mean the same thing. They're they're saying that hope is this generic good feeling that I need to have to survive. And I think that hope is a longing for a future condition over which I have no agency, which is perfectly fine when I have no agency. And there are times when I mean you know, I have been in, I've been really bad, but I, I don't like flying. It, it scares me. I don't think we should be 30,000 feet up in the air. I think that's nuts. And there have been times when there's been some turbulence where I am certainly hoping that we survive. And that's because once I'm there, you know, I'm completely out of control. And I refuse to believe that we are currently completely out of control. There are things I can do to help make things better. There are things I can do to stop certain timber sales. There are things I can do to impede the fossil fuel economy. There are things I can do to impede industrial civilization. There are things I can do to help the bears who, I mean, I give, I, I live on this, this forest and bears, I see bears every day. And one of the reasons I see bears every day is because I don't kill them and some of the neighbors do. And so there's a place, there's a refuge for them. And we can, you know, set aside habitat for various species. There are, there are a lot of things we can do. And then we have to hope that they make some, that they make some positive difference. You know, there's, there's, I, I really, I really love the work of Chris Tompkins and uh, Doug Tompkins is now dead and Yvonne Schoenard. And one of the things they've done is they've, they've protected vast amounts of land and, Okay, you can va protect vast amounts of land, and then you have to hope that the critters who live on that land, you know, are able to do everything from there. And that's the good news, is that life wants to live. So if we just stop the murder of it, it really wants to live, and we'll do whatever, whatever it takes to survive. Yeah, so we, have, we can have passive or active hope, in a sense. And many people have passive hope, the false hope. Yeah, I like that. I, I haven't thought of it that way, but I like it. Yeah, active hope is good. I like that. Thank you. Oh, it came to me. <laughs> so, you know, with this people who hate your work, people who can't, in a sense, confront the truth, have there been any downsides to your commitment to telling your truth, to showing us the real unadorned reality of how we live? I mean, I find myself balking at times at telling the entirety of my truth you know, I'm always in fear of backlash, which there's been much of in the past toward my work. Um, you know, I wrote an op-ed recently for Al Jazeera about the inevitability of a violent climate revolution and even filing that balanced, lukewarm piece scared me. I think this fear is what primarily stops me from being an activist. I'm always fearful of being targeted. How do you work through this fear? Um... Yeah, I think that that's an important thing for people to, to, to think about. I mean, has there been a downside apart from 
uh, the relatively routine death threats and the destruction of my career. Huh, death threats. Oh, yeah, I get death threats all the time. And unfortunately, they're not... The, the, the main one, almost all the hate mail, I've probably only gotten... Over the last 20 years, I've probably only gotten 100 or 200 uh, pieces of hate mail from actual right-wingers. And all the rest, the, the many, many thousands, the ones who really hate my work are, for the most part, uh, lifestyleists. People who believe that, I mean, I've gotten so much hate mail because I drive a car, so anti-car activists hate me. Um, I have flown to do talks, so anti-flying people hate me. And I gave a talk about how civilization is killing the planet one time. And this guy came up to me afterwards and said, if you have a bank account, I can discount everything you said. And I said, well, why can't you discount everything I said? Because I'm wearing shoes. I mean, that's, that's, there's this, this notion. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy that, that people get really mad because I point out that composting, gardening, simple living would not have stopped the Nazis, that we actually need organized political resistance. And that is where a lot of the, a lot of other anger came toward me was there are, there, there's a big split in anarchism between those who believe in organized resistance and those who believe that all organized resistance is fascism. And the, the anti-organizational people have just sent me uncountable death threats over the past 15 years. But the problems actually went further back than that. It's it's pretty interesting. So I had back in 1997, I had a um a Madison Avenue agent, address of 1 Madison Avenue, they had an entire floor, very prestigious literary agency, Sterling Lord Literistic, one of the biggest ones around. I was writing a language older than words. And I sent them the I sent my agent there the first 70 pages. And she responded very quickly that if I took out the family stuff and the social criticism that I'd have a book um, and I fired her on the spot and so that's sort of for me kind of emblematic of how you know I've talked about sort of destroying my career before it started and with every successive book I've kind of destroyed it more in terms of but I don't really care because I became a writer to try to tell the truth and to try to do what I could for the natural world Derek, I was going to ask you about the psychology of climate deniers, politicians, corporations, the whole apparatus of industrial civilization. I was going to ask whether they truly believe their lies or whether they too know the end is coming and just won't let on. Then I read this in Endgame. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is stopping them. What is the first step for someone who is not an activist, who is new to all this? How do they begin? How do we go about creating a culture of resistance? Well, there's a few things about that. Whether they actually do believe their lies or not is, you know, th this is a, a question that I've been asking ever since I was a child because, you know, my father would, would beat up members of the family and then immediately after deny he did it. And I, I wondered for decades whether he believed, actually believed his lies, whether he believed he didn't do it. And I had the opportunity to interview both Judith Herman, who wrote Trauma and Recovery, one of the world's experts on post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, she was one of the people who came up with the diagnosis of complex PTSD. And I also asked Robert J. Lifton. I had the opportunity to ask both of them. Robert J. Lifton is probably the world's foremost authority on the psychology of genocide. Do the perpetrators believe their lies? And they both had the same response, which is they laughed and said, I wish I knew. <laughs> and so... You know, if you, if the world's experts don't know if the perps believe their lies, then I'll trust that. And 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 there are a few really interesting things. One of them is that the psychiatrist R.D. Lang came up with the three rules of dysfunctional family, which are also three rules of dysfunctional culture. And rule A is don't. And rule A1 is rule A does not exist. And rule A2 is never discuss the existence or non-existence of rules A, A1, or A2. And, you know, that's how an abusive or dysfunctional family can work is we can talk about anything we want in the entire world except for the violence that we have to pretend isn't happening. And then you also can't talk about the fact that you can't talk about the violence that you have to pretend isn't happening. You can't talk about that. You can't talk about the fact that you can't talk about the fact, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the same thing is true on a, on a global scale. 
So you'll notice as soon as they start talking about global warming, it didn't take very long for it to be co-opted into, I mean, right now, the way the climate change movement works is you can have 100,000 people walking on the streets of Paris or New York or London, and if you ask them, why are you marching? They'll say, to save the planet. And if you ask them for their demands, they will say, we want subsidies for the solar industry and the wind industry. And that's a huge coup. I mean, that, that's extraordinary. And that is how, that's how these things work, is that you take something and then you twist it. So uh, one of my favorite examples about this was from, I don't know, three or 400 current era. Let's pretend for a second that Jesus really existed. And he's walking around talking about peace and love and everything. That's all fine. And then within a couple hundred years, you have the Homoousians and the Homoousians. They, they were two different groups of Christianity separated by an umlaut. One of them had an umlaut over one of the U's, I think, and the other one didn't. And the difference is that one of them believed that the Holy Trinity was three beings in one. And the other thought that the Holy Trinity was one being who became three. And they were killing each other by the hundreds over this. And I'm sorry to be so cynical, but I honestly think that we use most of our so-called intelligence to provide rationalizations for what we wanted to do anyway and don't actually use it to solve problems. And I think that's one of the things that we really have to overcome. A, a, a couple of simpler ways to say this. One is there's a great line by Upton Sinclair. It's hard to make a man understand something when his job depends on him not understanding it. Another thing to bring into this is, is um, back in the 60s, this guy Lester Laborski did this study where he attached electrodes to people's eyeballs and he would track where they would look. And then he would show them pictures that would contain something that would threaten their worldview. And what he found was that if there was something in the picture that would threaten their worldview that they found morally objectionable, their eyes would not track to it once. So they would see it out of the corner of their eye and they wouldn't look. So not only is it denial on a sort of conscious level, and then when you ask them later, was there thing ABC in this photo, they would say no and they'd be telling the truth because they hadn't seen it because they saw it out of the corner of their eye. And I know this happens all the time. I remember back in the 90s or early 2000s or something, back in the 90s, there was a, a drug enforcement agency guy in Colombia who was arrested because his wife was smuggling big amounts of cocaine in the middle of the, the big drug war. And part of the defense of both the husband and wife was that he didn't know. And she was doing lines of cocaine as he would walk through the room and he wouldn't see it. And you can say, yeah, 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 that's pretty fake. But think about this. And, you know, I don't want to get too personal, but if you've ever been in a really crappy relationship and, you know, anybody points out to you, you know, this relationship has this this problem, you're like, don't try to ruin my perfect relationship. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, my God, how, how did I not see that? And so we we are really, really good at self-deception. And I include myself in this, too. And I think that's one of the things that we're fighting is that there is tremendous self-deception when there is self-interest at heart, especially. I mean, I like hot showers. I like the goodies that civilization brings. But that doesn't alter the fact that those goodies, the creation of those goodies, they were created from materials from somewhere else that are destroying that other place, somebody else's home. And I want to tell a quick story. It's, it's, I love this story. About, uh, oh God, five or six years ago, I was being interviewed by this guy from Nature Online. And he was a dedicated uh, Marxist who, also a cornucopian. But anyway, he was a dedicated Marxist who believed that it was possible to design an economic system where no one was exploited and every exchange is purely voluntary. I said, great. Do you have cities? He said, yeah, of course we have cities. I said, great. How do you get around in your city? He said, well, a bus. I said, what's the bus made of? He said, metal. I said, great. Where do you get your metal? He said, from a mine. I said, how do you get people to go in mines? Because mines is, working in mines is one of the most horrible jobs that has, has ever been. In fact, it's one of the first causes of, first forms of slavery because nobody wants to live their life underground. 
So we just pay them a lot. I said, well, okay, I, I don't really agree, but I'll give you that. But every hard rock mine on the planet has destroyed local water. So what do you do about the people who live next to the river that's now going to be polluted? And he said, well, you pay them to move. I said, well, great. What about if they've lived there for 5,000 years? This is their home, and they refuse to move. He said, you pay them more. I said, no, their ancestors live there. They will not leave their ancestors. So so they're not going to buy. I mean, they're not going to sell no matter what you pay. He said, well, how many are there? I said, I don't know, what, 400. He said, well, the million people in the city vote, and they vote that those 400 people have to leave, and then you kick them off. And I said, oh, so what you're saying is you have gone from purely voluntary exchanges to democratic empire, land theft from indigenous people, and genocide, all within less than a minute, Also, you can have a bus. And the point is, I wish more people would follow the, the chains of supply back, and they would recognize, oh, I want to tell another story, which is back in 1997 or 8 or somewhere in there, I was asked to be part of this... Um, it was a group of maybe 20 people brought together by the Humane Society. It was organic farmers, or small organic farmers, uh, environmentalists, animal rights activists. And we were trying to talk about um, how to make things better. And at one point toward the end, um, the, the facilitator said that we were going to do this exercise where we're all going to pretend it's 20 years from now, which is 2017, 20 years from now, and this culture has achieved a transformation to a sustainable way of living. So I want you to picture it in your communities and what do your communities smell like and taste like. And then we all were supposed to close our eyes for 30 seconds. And I didn't close my eyes. I'm looking around and everybody else is just sort of smiling so happily to picture it. And then they start going around and they're saying, oh, we walk on, we, we take our bike to work. And, you know, where do you get the metal? Anyway, we take our bike to work. We, we, we walk on these beautiful paths in parks. And they're saying how wonderful it smells with the flowers. And they get to me. And I'm like, this breaks my heart. And the reason it breaks my heart is because, A, how do we get from here to there? Because we know those in power are psychopaths. And how did we stop them? And B, where do we get the metal for the bikes? And see, we all know that if we in our community start to live sustainably, and we are living sustainably in our community, and those in power discover oil under our land, or they discover uranium under our land, or they discover any other resource they want under our land, we all know what's going to happen to our land, our community, and those of us who resist. And, I mean, I wasn't particularly popular at that thing, but it's just... This is, this is just one of the things that breaks my heart is I go back to the medical model. You don't tell somebody who has cancer, well, you know, things aren't really that bad. I mean, you go ahead, you lay it out, and then we lay out the options. And, <coughs> excuse me, and I, I just wish we would do that. You know, I, 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 this is sort of a different subject, but I will sum up all of my work, since I've been jumping around so much, I'll sum up all of my work in a couple sentences, which are, this way of living cannot last forever. After it's done, I would prefer that there is more of the living planet left rather than less. That's it. That's everything. That's my entire, that's my entire body of work right there. And the question is, so how do we get there? What do we do to make sure that there is I mean, I think we try to bring things down sooner because every day that passes, 200 more species go extinct. I think we, we defend every scrap of land, every wild being we can, every wild species we can. I mean, those are a couple of things. We can talk more about others if you want. But, but anyway, that's, that's, that's where it starts. This is wonderful. I, I feel embarrassed I didn't uh, know of you before, Derek. I, uh, I don't know. I'm just a mainstream, you know, former business student, young career guy freaked out about climate change and I haven't got into the, the psychosocial aspects as much, but I, I agree with everything you're saying. For someone like me who grew up on a, on a really big diet of, of science fiction and kind of looking forward into, you know, and I've gone through that grieving process of, you know, the, the big, exciting, um, full of potential future is probably not going to arrive, not like we've been envisioning it since the 
the 1950s. Um, what is your kind of vision for a, a near, you know, near to midterm future? Do you see us and in, in the way our society acts that that behavior, if we became, you know, a multi planet species or something, are we just going to just replicate this cycle on and on and on? Or if we don't reach that point, are things going to come to a head here on our garden planet and we'll either change or or snuff ourselves out? Um. A couple of things. One is, and thank you for that. And one of one of them is that um, I grew up on those science fiction novels too. Um, you know, like the Foundation trilogy. I thought was great when I was, I don't know, fifteen or something. Um, and I still think about some of the Foundation trilogy and some of the other science fiction works too. The 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 thing is, who's the guy? What's the thing where they? Um, it's it's some famous physicist. It's his par No, it's not. It's somebody's paradox. No, no, it's not that. I don't think. It's it's the paradox where they say, if there are aliens out there, why haven't they contacted us? Is that fair me? Okay. So I've always I've always thought that's not actually a paradox. I've always thought for being such an incredibly smart guy as he was, that's not really a very smart question, I don't think. And the reason is because um because civilization is functionally unsustainable that oh god who was it uh elon musk i think or somebody actually suggested that the way you look for intelligent life on other planets is by looking for pollution yeah <laughs> and it's like <laughs> it's not horrifying yeah it's like w w wait 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 because I mean, you see the problem with that. Yeah, and intelligence maladaptive, so essentially. The problem is that when we have a way of life that's based on the use of non-renewable resources, it won't last. And when it's based on the hyper-exploitation of renewable resources, it won't last. Hello, Mark here with a quick editor's note. Just in the middle of this serious point, you're about to hear Derek start to chuckle. And there's a good reason for this. Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, Katarina had dropped off the call. She was no longer able to hear either me or Derek, but we could still hear her. So you're about to hear Derek responding to this voice in his ear, who doesn't know that we can still hear her, and who can't hear us. But it's at this point that I jump in from being just the producer on the segment to being co-host. Just to get one last question in before the end. So... Sorry, the reason I'm laughing, you can cut this out. The reason I'm <laughs> laughing is because as we're talking, I'm hearing her in the background like yeah. like the conscience in some <laughs> sort of 1970s um, French New Wave film. Yep. She's just the conscience in the background as, as the other people are talking. So if you have a civilization, it, it won't last. Every civilization that has come up, that has arisen, has, has eventually fallen and usually it's because they destroy the topsoil and because they, they get rid of all the local... Um, they, they destroy the local land base. And this civilization has had the advantage of being able to, excuse me, conquer the world. and But there are no more continents really to conquer. And we're seeing the... what happens when you push all these... Uh, natural communities, what most people call ecosystems, to their breaking point. So I don't think... I, I don't think that a multi-planetary civilization is a real possibility um, because we're seeing that this current system is pushing the entire planet to its breaking points. And there are stolid scientists who are saying that the, the the oceans could be devoid of fish by 2050. And so I don't think... But the problem... Okay, here's what I wish. Every cell in my body... And my first degree was in physics, so I, I know science. And, you know, I, I, I love the rigor of thinking that comes with at least some science. And I wish that we would use that ability in order to solve the problems that we're facing, as opposed to, frankly, figuring out new ways to create problems. I mean, like, right now, you know, the, with the ice caps melting and with, with Greenland losing its ice, what's happening is not horror at this 
what's going on, but instead excitement and um, gold lust for the resources that are being opened up. So they're not seeing this as a purely bad thing, but they're seeing this as an opportunity. And so we're using our intelligence for for the wrong purposes. And I wish that we would... I think it would be really fun to be using our technical skills to actually try to help the Earth repair. And every cell in my body wishes that was going to happen, but it's not happening. And so what I see happening is things getting worse and worse and environmentally until um, until the economic system can no longer... Um, I mean, the economic system is already under collapse. I'm not just talking about coronavirus. That, you know, in the United States, I don't know how it is for other countries, but in the United States, real wages have been falling since 1973 or 1972. And so there's a sense in which, there, you know, when we think of collapse, and I'm, I'm among these, you know, we like to think about, you know, the walls of Jericho falling and people, you know, staring at the sky in horror as the as the big building falls on them. But that's not really how collapse happens. Collapse happens by... You know, I don't know how, again, I don't know how it is for Australia, but in the U.S., there's, um, I would give talks in towns in the Rust Belt, and like half of the buildings are empty, and storefronts are going out. And the little town where I live, Walmart came in and did what Walmart does everywhere, and all the little stores went out of business. And that's what the collapse looks like. And I think it just keeps going and going and going, and it just happens more and more rapidly and then there'll be a little recovery but then every recovery is less than the one before and um i don't know i think i i think honestly that i know a lot of people who are of childbearing age who are seriously considering not having children because they think that the future will be really bad and you know my mom died um 16 months ago and her last several years she would often say you know, I don't want to see what's coming. Because, how old are you? So, I'm 59, and there's a dramatic difference. I only Okay, I only moved to where I live now 20 years ago, and there's a dramatic decline in both insects and birds just in the last 20 years, and spiders. It used to be that when I bring in firewood at my mom's house, um, I would have to pick up every piece of firewood, you know, brush the little spiders off, brush the little sow bugs off, the pill bugs, the roly polies. And then that was for the first 10 years. And then for the next 10 years, I would still look, but it was pretty much pro forma. And these days, I don't even bother to look because there's nothing on them. And so I have seen, you know, this complete collapse of the biosphere, or not a complete collapse, but I've seen a collapse of the biosphere. And you're going to see it worse. And your children are going to see it worse. And I guess this will be a good thing to end on, unless you have another question, which was that I read this book a while back called 13 Moons. It's by Charles Frazier, the guy who wrote Cold Mountain. And the book was set in North Carolina in the 19th century, from 1820 to 1900. And its its, its primary thing is a love story between this man and the woman. And it was fi- I was fine. But the thing I loved about that book was the love story between the protagonist and the land. And he's an old man at the end, and he gives this wonderful speech about how it is normal when you live to have your parents die, and then your older siblings die, and then your friends die, and then and then you eventually die. And that's 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 been the lot of every every human who has ever lived in community that that's what happens and the thing that is different is that we haven't seen land bases die so that what's supposed to happen is if you live in a forest a tree falls and new trees come up but the forest still stands and he said this from 1820 to 1900 so at the beginning of the book in a in a very early scene there are still wolves, there's still snakes, there's still, you know, buffalo had just been eliminated just a few years ago. There's still a lot of wildlife. 
And by the end, he's living right next to this railroad track that carries tourists west and uh, trees east every day. And he says, we, were, we did not evolve to know how to deal with the grief of watching entire land bases die. It's, again, you know, when my mom died, I was, and still am, 16 months later, completely bereft. It, it devastated me. It, it's, it's as, a, as a dear friend of mine says about loss like this, there's a hole in, the, a hole in my heart the size of my mom. And, but, 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 but we evolved to have to deal with that pain. And every human who's ever lived has dealt with that pain. But what we haven't dealt with and what we, is impossible evolutionarily to deal with is the loss of entire land bases. And that's what we have to fight. And that's what we're fighting to protect. What a pleasure to get to talk to you. And I'm so glad that Katerina has come on board and, to, and reached out to you. Oh, what a pleasure, too. Thank you so much. The questions <laughs> were fabulous, yeah, including she, yours. She, she, oh, she put a lot into them. I, I just... I, I've got a small little well of questions I'll always go to. I just like getting as many perspectives as I can on kind of, you know. That's great. I, I do have an apocalyptic kind of outlook about the future. and It's nice to know I'm, you know, in good company. <laughs> I, um, I got to write an apocalyptic novel one of these days. You do. You do. And we'll, we'll definitely have you on about that because I, 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 that's one show I want to do. Just a, a complete, just a show dedicated to imaginings of the future, both you know, positive, how you can write positive cli-fi is beyond me, but some people do it. But then just the various shades of, of collapse, you know, various versions of, of calamity that we're going to see. You know, the, well, if the you do that out. show and you don't include me, make <laughs> sure... Well, that's oh, we fine will. if you don't. <laughs> no, we That's will. fine. It's perfectly fine if you don't include me. If you do that show and you don't include me, then send me the link because I want to listen to it. Wonderful. You'll, you'll be our first listener. <laughs> Thank you great. so much for your time today, okay, Derek. Thanks. I really appreciate Have it. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.